0: As part of national coming out week, I wanted to highlight my friends, the debt-free guys, AKA husbands, John Schneider and David Otten. In this episode, we explore how they got into debt, trying to keep up with others and get validation, as well as the financial challenges that LGBTQ community face and why we also discuss shocking statistics around mental health in the gay and trans community. And why now reaching out is more important than ever. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today I have my friends, the Debt Free Guys, on the show. I'm so excited. With their writing and their speaking, the Debt Free Guys right on DebtFreeGuys.com, their microblog, DebtLasso.com, and their Queer Money podcast. David Otten and John Snyder help queer people and allies live fabulously, not fabulously broke. They represent the queer voice in both personal and business finances. David and John's work has appeared in Forbes, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, ABC News, and Good Morning America, to name just a few. Their goal is to connect LGBTQ people with the information and services they need so that queer community can do more and be more. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're super excited to be here.
0: (laughs) I'm so happy to have you guys on the show. You know, we go way back in the debt-free community.
1: Um, Yes. (laughs) 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 Let's not talk about that.
0: (laughs) I know. I feel like it's... Approaching five years plus. I'm not even sure how long we've been connected, but it's been quite a while when I was writing a lot of Dear Debt and paying off debt, and you guys were starting Debt Free Guys. And I've loved seeing your journey of creating Debt Free Guys. And then you guys have just propelled to this amazing brand, this amazing resource for people. And I'm so excited about what you guys do. So, To start, I would love to hear a little bit about your debt payoff story and also just what you guys do for our audience.
1: Sure, sure,
2: definitely. So obviously, I I think like most folks, John and I had separate debt stories that we brought with us to our relationship, but it was after being together about a year that we kind of settled down from the puppy love, spend all your money, dating each other kind of phase. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I think everybody goes through that. Uh, you're one of the lucky ones if you've talked about money before that time period. But for us, really, our debt kind of debt free journey began when we were still in our spend and consume phase. We went up to the mountains in Colorado for a short weekend trip to visit a friend of John's and fell in love with a little mountain town and decided that that would be a perfect place for us to buy land and build a vacation home. So we, on our way out of town on Sunday, checked out real estate, hopped in the car and started driving back down towards Denver. So we started out this elevation above 9,000 feet, having this amazing conversation about what it would be like to buy land and, and build this beautiful vacation home. and. As we kept on driving down the mountain, our our conversation about what we could afford began to change. We went from that fantasy of buying land and building a home to maybe buying something that already existed to maybe renting long-term to the time period when we got home, uh, we pulled up to our place, grabbed our bags, opened up the door, walked down a flight of stairs into a basement apartment. Oh. Uh, that <laughs> was, that was our home. And it was actually, that was the, when we kind of really kind of came clean about our money story to each other. We came out about our money to each other.
0: Oh, I love that.
2: Yeah. We confessed between the two of us that we had a combined $51,000 in credit card debt. And the sad part about it is that John and I were at that point in time, had a combined 13 years of experience working in financial services, talking to, and helping, and guiding other people through the process of investing and saving more for retirement and getting your life on track financially. And we were not at all doing that for ourselves. And we realized at that point, at that low point, that we were both physically and financially living in a hole. We were living below ground. Our finances were upside down and we were complete financial messes and we were just shocked that this is where we had arrived and we needed to take the time to figure out what was going on and where would we end up if we didn't change or we did change the way we were living our lives.
0: Oh, I love that.
2: So that's kind of the impetus of how it all started.
0: (laughs) That's the awakening.
2: (laughs) Yes. The
1: aha moment.
0: (laughs) What was that conversation like when you guys first came clean to each other and you were like, this is how much debt we have? Like, I can just imagine that this is like a bubble being popped. You know, you're not in puppy love anymore. It's like, we're dealing with the real life issues. And that includes, you know, all of this debt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think what was interesting is we've talked about this in hindsight that. I knew that I had a bunch of debt. I knew that I was a financial mess, and I just kind of assumed that there's no possible way that he's also as much of a mess as I am. <laughs> and he had <laughs> he had he had the same opinion of me. He's like, "Clearly this guy must have his act together."
0: That's so funny. And
1: and we were just two peas in a pod that like were attracted to each other. And what that did was it did burst a bubble and we were we were defeated for a while. What that kind of exposed though was we realized that that was just the physical manifestation of how we had felt about ourselves up to that point. And our beliefs about our self-worth and about what we could earn and who we were in society and what we could contribute was somehow manifested in that fat $51,000 in credit card debt. So it really forced us to have not only a look about our finances what were the thoughts and behaviors, even unconscious thoughts and behaviors that got us into that situation? You know, Maya Angelou always says, when you know better, you do better. Well, we knew better, but we did not do better. Um, so we did not live up to that. And so we had to really figure out what it is that we were doing that was, was putting us in that particular situation and then keeping us there because we realized that we were on a trajectory to go deeper and deeper into a hole and, and we wouldn't be able, would not have been able to survive that.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is the mental health and wealth show. And I love to talk about the intersection of money and mental health. And, you know, you mentioned this idea that this was the manifestation of your self-worth of everything that you had believed to that point. Can you go a little bit deeper into like how you figured out that this was more of a money mindset issue, you know, and a a problem with self-worth and then how did you kind of climb out of that?
2: Well, one of the first things that I did when we were paying off our debt or getting on the debt-free journey was I did a spending analysis and it really opened our eyes up to the what we were spending our money on. And John and I realized that the vast majority of the money that we were spending was being spent on trying to make ourselves look better to other people or to make ourselves feel feel like we fit in. Or in my case, many times I spent money literally to buy the friendship of people that I didn't think would like me if I didn't pay for their drinks or buy them a meal or do various things that would in essence basically engender them to me because I didn't feel like I was worthwhile in any other way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, it was the looking at how we were spending our money or what we were spending our money on that I think was the first kind of scratch the surface of why are we spending this way and why, what do, what are we really longing for? What do we really want in life? And that's kind of kicked off this whole conversation of what's important and what do we really value. And when we realized that our values, Or what we really thought we valued or wanted to value didn't match up with our spending and that our spending was based on this kind of superficial value, we started to unearth some of the feelings around why we were spending that way. Why did we feel this compelled to, to seek the validation of everyone else rather than the validation of ourselves?
0: That's so interesting. And you know, I know you've mentioned that part of your debt story is coming up with this money to live a specific lifestyle that you saw in the gay community and I'm curious how quote gay culture affected your finances and if there if you think there was this desire to fit in regardless of cost. It sounds like you kind of mentioned that, but I'd love for you to kind of go a little deeper and talk about, you know, what was this compulsion to spend money? What is this thing that you have to fit in? And do you think it has to deal with that if you're coming out, you know, you're already kind of something different than quote everybody else. And there's this desire to fit in, like what's the nexus of all of that?
1: Yeah. I I think there's, there are a lot of things converging in in one spot for David and and me particularly um, we came from times and places when it wasn't okay to be gay. And while LGBTQ acceptance is better than it ever has been before, it's still got a long way to go in parts of the country and for particular individuals in our community. We're not anywhere close to where we need to get. And so I think when you grow up in a culture where politicians and churches and educators, media, uh, parents, family, constantly saying either to you directly because they know you might be LGBTQ or they're just saying it on the side, not knowing that you are, that being LGBTQ is bad or that you're going to go to hell, you're going to burn in hell for the rest of eternity. And you receive all of these overt and and covert messages that being LGBTQ is horrible, you adopt that. And and no matter how thick skin you are, that carries on with you until you eventually address that. And most of us don't address that until unfortunately we get to a rock bottom moment. And so that was our particular experience. Um, I think the other thing that we're, we're challenged with is that gay men in particular in, uh, Going through the HIV AIDS crisis, we kind of adopted this as a as a culture this sort of a carpe diem effect, because many of us just as- assumed that we weren't going to live beyond you know forty or, or or fifty years old. So why even worry about saving enough money for re- that elusive retirement in my sixties and seventies? Why be concerned about all those long term sort of adult things? I'm going to die young and it was you know a surprise it's been a surprise to our community the progress that medicine has made in the fight against hiv and aids and now we have not only a population of older gay men who didn't plan appropriately and planned on dying a lot younger who are now living on the fringes of our community and struggling to make ends meet but that carpe diem effect hasn't really dissipated in our community we still sort of have that we still sort of have that expectation And so gay men in particular are supposed to be fabulous, right? You need your gay best friend to help you dress and help you design your house. And we have to look good and and be funny and all these sort of stereotypes that we must live up to. And a lot of us feel that unless we live up to that, unless we show that we can keep up with that, that we're not necessarily worthy. And it almost becomes a competition that the things that I have and all the things that I can show you are proof that despite what my parents told me when I was younger or my church told me when I was younger, I am as good as you, if not better, because otherwise I wouldn't have these fabulous jeans on. I wouldn't be able to go to all these fabulous parties and these vacations. Now we may not be expressing that consciously, but I think there's a, a, an unconscious tendency for many in our community to sort of try to make up for the past in that kind of fashion.
2: I'll just add to that, that, uh, for many of us growing up, we experience at different times in our lives various forms of traumatic experiences, some types of trauma. And I think for LGBT folks who are not in a an accepting and confirming household or church or community, that there's this oftentimes hidden traumatic experiences. No one knows or really realizes that they're traumatic experiences, but we're experiencing those traumatic experiences on a very personal level. And there's kind of really only two ways to deal with trauma. You either confront the trauma and try to figure out how to heal from it, or you do the best job that you can burying that trauma in a way that hides it from other people and from you and we live in a culture today where living fabulously having all of the material things in life and being able to display them is one of the easiest ways to kind of cover up or hide that trauma so that other people don't see it and we don't necessarily feel it right I go shopping at the mall every week and I go buy this and that, well, that covers up my trauma. I hang out with my friends and they see my new clothes and I buy a round of shots for everybody and they think I'm great, that covers up my trauma. I think a lot of us are are dealing with our trauma in a financial way that is self-sabotaging and for many of us, it will end up coming out in some way that we don't really want it to. and. Fortunately for John and I, we confronted it early on.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that. And you guys brought up such fantastic points about trauma and kind of spending and self-sabotaging. And I really loved the point of, you know, this kind of carpe diem attitude specifically related to HIV and the AIDS crisis. You know, that's not something I had put two and two together, but it makes total sense. And I really appreciate you Shedding light on that. And it's so funny that you guys uh, talked about trauma. Not funny that you talked about trauma, but um, I just spent the whole weekend (laughs) reading this book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it was all about trauma. And it was very, very difficult stories of trauma. But basically, the premise of the book is that everyone experiences trauma at some point, and the body keeps the score. The body remembers, you know, and we have to really deal with that. You know, it was saying that trauma can come out in different pain, different autoimmune diseases and depression and anxiety into anger, you know, into just so many different things if we don't address it. And I think to your point, a lot of people kind of take that trauma and put it outward and, you know, look at my clothes and look at my fancy car. And we're living in this artifice, hoping that we don't have to dig deeper, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's not, it's not unique to the LGBTQ community. We have, you know, people are dealing with in, in all different communities, um, in similar ways, right? I mean, you have whole neighborhoods of people who are living beyond their means and kind of competing with each other, who can throw the best birthday parties for their children or who can have the best decorations on their house, uh, who can have the, the best front porch, all that kind of stuff. We, we have to kind of ask ourselves, why is it we want to do what it is that we think that we want to do? Is there more to it than just you know, us trying to improve our home or us trying to have a, a good time?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to investigate these questions, like why we feel like we should do something. And a lot of the times I think it's, you know, us getting conditioned into these cultures that we just think it's normal, but maybe normal isn't always the best, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Um, It's interesting that we're talking about this because I think I oftentimes ask the question of, is there a double-edged sword to self-care? Because oftentimes we'll do things in the name of self-care not realizing that at the same time it's sabotaging our financial state or our financial future. And so it's important to give yourself you do need the self-care, but make sure the self-care isn't also really harming another part of your life.
0: Totally, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. Actually, uh Natalie Bacon who, you know, she was a finance blogger back in the day, I don't know if you guys remember her. And um, she's doing life coaching stuff now and I listened to one of her things and she said that self-care isn't always going to be fun. Real self-care is about managing your finances, is about, you know, managing exercise and doing the things that are good for you. you know, we often think that self-care is just about, you know, baths and buying things and making ourselves feel good. And I think that's also true, but it doesn't have to just be it. Like self-care can be uncomfortable like that real deep Trying to sustain myself and change my life, kind of self-care and self-love.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You think about physical health, right? Whether it's exercising or eating right, um, eating right it isn't always going to taste the best, right? Yeah. I mean, literally, if you want to if you think that self-care uh, taking care of yourself is eating the best tasting food, then we're all going to be sitting around eating Pringles and Ben and
1: Jerry's all the time, <laughs> yeah. right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> but that really, you're going to put
1: Pringles, like the best foods in the world, you pick Pringles. then and, and and hey, <laughs> I'm on board. I'm on board. I'm with
2: you. <laughs> From time to time, those things are good and healthy, but... Not long term.
0: <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't have like three donuts a day every day, which you yeah. know is my fantasy. But typically, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't do I that. I'm that
1: for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and eventually, it would make us sick too, you know. And so it's this balance of doing things that feel good, but also realizing true self care. That's getting to the nitty gritty stuff, like managing your finances. And it's so not fun, and it's so not sexy, but it'll help you in the longer term.
1: Yeah, what you need to do is focus on you know, what is the goal and think of, the, think of the, the end product and that'll help you get through the, the period of time when you have to do the work.
0: Yes, and there, yes, yes, yes. There are
2: great ways to gamify or actually make financial education or the financial habits or the financial progress to make it fun to, to see it happen right? Mm-hmm. The, we all love the results of having gone to the gym every day for three months in a row. We know with the physical and the we see the results. We love that, right? Well, the same thing can happen when we work on our finances.
0: Yes, I love that. And having that feeling of accomplishment and seeing more commas and more zeros in the bank is so exciting.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about, you know, what are the financial challenges that might be unique or more prevalent with people who identify as LGBTQ?
1: Sure. I mean, there's, unfortunately, there's a a litany of of challenges for our community. Um, I think the first one that comes to mind is that 40% of uh, homeless youth identify as LGBTQ. So whether they're leaving because they've been kicked out of their parents' home or they're leaving for their own safety, they're starting life behind um, with a bigger challenge than many of us did, because at the very least we had the emotional support of our family as we were trying to get into adulthood and to try to navigate adulting. Um, whereas they don't have that option, and that hinders many aspects of their lives, especially their finances. In addition to that, there's similar to the the gender pay gap. There's a sexual orientation and gender identity pay gap, mm. um, and simply LGBTQ people are just are just paid less. We seek. Um, lower paying careers and we are simply just paid less and we don't aspire to or get those higher positions. Uh, in fact, a University of Surrey study came out a couple of years ago that, that said that simply sounding or looking gender non-conforming, not necessarily being LGBTQ, but just appearing or sounding can lose you a promotion, a raise or a job.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Um, and that's what our community is dealing with um, on a day to day basis.
2: I'll add to that that some of the behavior can actually, or the limitations can come from inside of us because of outward pressures. So, for example, if you, it was only this year that the Supreme Court basically said that an individual cannot be fired because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Before that, there were 30 states in the country. That someone could be fired if they were basically t- to be outed about their gender identity or sexual orientation. Now, what a lot of people say, well, that doesn't really happen. Well, you're right, it may not be that overt. But when you work at a company where you know a leader is known to be or have made jokes or outright comments about someone's gender identity or sexual orientation, you may limit your upward trajectory because you don't want to be outed, right? We know that the higher someone climbs in the corporate ladder, when you become a manager, when you become a director, when you become a a VP or a VP, as you go up the ladder, your company and your colleagues want to know more and more about you. They do that for a couple of reasons, because they want to know how you got to that place, but they also want to know for risk purposes, right? Companies need to protect themselves, so they want to know more about you. Well, if you know that there are leaders in your company that would out you and fire you, or basically in some cases, maybe discriminate against you, you won't move up the corporate ladder. So we sometimes trap ourselves in lower positions because it's safety. And that is part. That is a contributing factor as to why there is this, this pay gap is because there's this unspoken discrimination that we
1: internalize
2: and hold ourselves back. And we need to break free from that and society needs to break free from that.
1: And then I, I think I'll, the last thing I'll add is I think we're doing a lot to help equalize uh, spread equality for the LGBT community. But unfortunately, I think transgender people in our community aren't making as much progress as maybe the other letters of the alphabet. And unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities for them to be themselves in corporate America. There's limiting career options where they're, they know that there's that safety. And they unfortunately, a lot of that is in the arts and entertainment space. But not everybody can be you know, on a TV show, and not everybody can be a movie star, and so we have to as a as a society, we need to be start being more inclusive of transgender people in all walks of life because they are doctors and lawyers and engineers and checkout clerks, and you know all over the board. They're more than just pop stars and actors and actresses,
0: definitely. I'd want to have a show on transgender specifically, and I saw this movie called Marsha on Netflix, and I didn't realize that transgender movement was totally kind of left out of the gay liberation movement, you know, a couple of decades ago. And I didn't realize that it wasn't really met with that same kind of fervor and passion. And I just had no idea. But I think there is this kind of feeling that we need to have representation and kind of normalize this. And as you guys mentioned, there's this need for secrecy, because secrecy means safety. And I can't imagine whatever you identify with having to live in that Secrecy all the time. I mean, if you cannot Mm -hmm. be yourself, then that's already traumatic. If you if you show up every day and you have to just, you know, hide into a box and perform a certain way, even if it's against who you really are.
2: It's very interesting if you look at the income spectrum within the LGBT community. And I, I completely understand this. There's a lot of anger about the distribution of wealth within the LGBT community. And when you look at it, the individuals who are traditionally making the most money are individuals who are and have been able to be as normalized, gender-conforming as possible. Right? And mm-hmm. that's because that's what society, that's what corporate America has as required of us for such a long time period. So it was, it has been easier for folks like that to basically move up the corporate ladder or make those movements towards uh, making bigger paychecks. And it's very difficult because that means that the individuals who are outside of the norm or gender conforming, that they are getting left behind. And it's, you're really talking about, a lot of that is a safety thing, right? It is a safety thing. The reason why ones are successful is because they were it was easier for them to find safety because of who they were. Those who is less easy to find safety because of who they are and how they they present themselves are getting left behind. And we need to figure out how to end that.
0: I think there's a lot more movement and progress that we need to make in this realm, particularly and thank you for shedding further light on, you know, kind of this income gap and kind of the wage disparities, even among LGBTQ community. And, you know, I, it just comes back to this idea of safety. And, we're you know, we're talking about financial challenges. And I just keep thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, there's that first kind of rung of just like, you have to have your necessities taken care of. And if you're wondering, do I have, you know, a place to sleep tonight, because I'm a homeless youth, because my parents kicked me out, I mean, of course, you're not going to be able to even think about how to manage money or get money. And if you feel like you have to constantly live this secret life, you're not going to be living to your full potential. And so that's such an important connection that you guys discussed about financial challenges relating to this feeling of safety and also what's accepted in current society and in the workforce. And, you know, aside from financial challenges, I also wanted to talk about mental health challenges. I know mental health is a huge issue in the LGBTQ community. Info from, um, that I found from the human rights campaign stated that LGBTQ people are more likely to have mental health and substance abuse issues. Plus, a whopping 40% of transgender adults have attempted suicide during their lifetime compared to 5% of the general population. From your perspective, what are some of the contributing factors? I know we've discussed a lot already, but if you have anything else to add, I'd love to hear more.
2: I guess I have to kind of kind of go back to the whole idea of past traumas in your life. And although we're very grateful that things are changing, societal norms are changing around gender identity and sexual orientation, there are still everyday people who deal with those kinds of traumatic experiences. And one of the The unfortunate things is that a lot of the traumatic experiences that LGBT folks have are rooted in and based in their identity. It's not something they can change. You can't change your identity, right? And so when you have all of these pressures coming from whether it's family or church or politics or classmates, Whoever it is, you have those experiences and those experiences build up a, an identity that is kind of masked in all of this, these unwanted feelings. And those unwanted feelings, unless you're a really strong person or find the right support system, then those experiences are going to come back to life in some other manner. Uh, We talked about the financial aspect of it, but clearly... The ideas of substance abuse and mental health issues around self-loathing and internalized homophobia are really, really strong in the community, and we are not getting or seeking the right kind of help to help deal with those situations.
1: I think, too, it's important to talk about these traumatic experiences as um, as more than just these gigantic experiences they can be a compounding of small experiences. So if walking down the street and getting yelled at and spit on and that being it for that particular for the for that day, that being a good day, that shows you the context of the challenges that some people have. If you know that walking into a store there's a good chance you might get kicked out because you don't look or act or sound uh quote unquote normal, those are kind of microaggressions that kind of compound on themselves each time they happen. And make each day a little bit more difficult than it does for the general population, and those, the compounding of those experiences manifests itself then in spending ridiculously, drinking drugs, uh, other kinds of addictions, and then eventually, unfortunately, suicidal attempts and and success the suicide. So um, I think it's more than, especially for some in our community, just these uh, these one time. Huge life-altering events, but sometimes it's these these micro experiences, kind of just reaffirming that your your worthiness to society.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I really appreciate you kind of shedding light on what the experience is for people who are dealing with these mental health issues. And I feel like it's a recipe of a lot of different factors, as you mentioned. It's not just necessarily one thing. And even the whole idea of you know, quote coming out. Uh, that sounds like very traumatic to me in and of itself. Like you having to like have this big declaration. Um, would you mind telling me about your story? Is that too much or weird or?
2: I don't mind. I have a very kind of uh, awkward story because of the way I was raised. This is David. Um, mm-hmm. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and on top of that, I had a physically and verbally abusive father. And so I had, uh, who I think maybe early on saw some tendencies in me that he was maybe clued into that I might be gay. And so I think that that kind of exacerbated some of the experiences that I had um, growing up. But because my community was the church, all of my friends were in the church. And then my immediate family was in the church. Now, for Jehovah's Witnesses, when you come out, they basically, they excommunicate you and the family excommunicates you. Mm. Um, it it took me until I was 26 to get up the courage to come out. Uh, I had never been with anybody. I had never experimented. But I knew from an early age that I was gay and I was dealing with that. And so it took me until I was 26 to finally get up the courage. I had, I finally had a job I could support myself. And so I ended up leaving, uh, when I, w- when I came out to my parents, I mean, literally my mother was standing next to my father and she collapsed on the floor and started oh my to goodness. cry. It, it, it was almost as if somebody had told her I had died. And, um, I, was scared because of what I had done. I, you know, I kept on saying to myself, Oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And I, I was, I I realized what I had done was I had been myself and that wasn't what anyone in my family, immediate family or the church wanted me to do. Fortunately, some of my extended family have been very accepting and very welcoming uh, years later after I kind of reached back out to them. So I do have some family, but you know, you you have your biological family and you have your logical family. And for me, my logical family is much bigger and more important to me than my biological family.
0: Oh, I love that. And thank you so much for sharing that. I know I kind of asked you that on the fly and I appreciate you sharing your story and I hope that it provides courage and hope and understanding for other people listening who might be dealing with difficult experiences as well and like I thought that sounds very traumatic and I'm I'm so sorry that you had to go through that and I can definitely see how that would affect your mental health and your relationships and your family and what we've seen in regards to mental health is that having a support network is so crucial and if you don't feel loved and support from your caretakers then that inherently is traumatic already you know Yes.
1: Great. Yeah, I think I think David's a story is, is is a little slice of life of what the experience of some LGBTQ people have. Here he grew up in a very conservative church and a very conservative household, where they didn't even encourage him to go to college because why would you need to go to college? The Lord is going to take care of you. You don't. Everything's going to be take care of for you. So here he was, comes out at 26 years old. Luckily, he had a job. But he knew he was going to lose all of his familial support system and all of his friends, all the friends he had up until that point, point. Mm. Um, and you know he didn't have a college degree at that point. So that just makes everything a little bit harder. And and here he is, a nontraditional student going to college several years after most of us have gotten our diplomas uh, and or I'm sorry degrees, gotten our degrees. So it just it just slice of life or a slice of the experience of what some LGBTQ people deal with because things just aren't working according to what society says is the traditional path because you're not the traditional person.
0: Wow, you guys are even more inspiring than I thought. I didn't realize um all of that and I really appreciate you sharing your story because you know when things are set up in a way that doesn't lead to acceptance or support or success then you know there's going to be difficulties along the way and it sounds like you guys have been really brave in trying to overcome that and now really being a source of support for others
1: we hope so
2: <laughs> we try <laughs> we try it, it's you know i said this earlier today um but it's important here too i think sharing stories is the way that we learn about how the world is not as we see it that the world is 7.4 billion different stories they're all different and so we we can't overlay what we believe or what we think or what the way we act on someone else and say, well, it'll be okay if you just do this because it was okay for me, right? Mm -hmm. The world is, is different for every single person. And the more we understand that, the more we realize that, the more we will have compassion and understanding about how other people are living their lives.
0: Totally. And, you know, we're all the protagonists of our own stories. So I think that's important to consider as well, mm-hmm. you know, when we're thinking about these larger stories. So I wanted to talk to you about, you know, this thing that some LGBTQ youth fight for acceptance and support from their family, you know, something that we've mentioned already. For someone who identifies as LGBTQ and is starting their adult life without much support and resources, what financial advice would you give them specifically?
2: There was a study that came out uh, that Prudential did in 2018, and they found that of uh, LGBT folks, roughly 50% of them did not have a basic banking relationship with a checking or savings account. I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the youth of the community and the fact that so many in the community work in jobs and services where they're paid with cash and so they don't necessarily have that relationship or they don't trust banking services. They've been burned in the past. But the reality is is that a bank, whether that's a traditional bank, a credit union, banking is going to be one of your foundational keys. So if you don't have a bank, I would say that's the first thing is to find a bank. There's several banks out there and credit unions that do amazing work in the LGBT community. They've been there and they will continue to be there for our community, so find one of those. And that kind of is, I would say, where you wanna start. There's always educational tools through those relationships, whether it's uh, you're gonna find information on their websites or you're going to find that they do classes or things like that. That, I think, is a great place to kind of get your footing or your foundation. The other great thing is um, back in 2015, when John and I started on this journey of of being bloggers and podcasters, we went to FinCon for the very first time. That's the kind of conference that brings together all these personal finance folks who are out there creating content. And we were surprised that we were the only out people, a conference of over 900 people. No one else was out and talking about money from the LGBT perspective. Last year in 2019, when that conference was held, we had a a meetup and there were over 40 people in the room who are out there creating content that they themselves identify or they are creating content for the LGBT community. So there is a growing voice of individuals who are sharing the stories and the information about queer money, about money from the LGBT perspective get out there, find those voices, find one that speaks to you. And just kind of one last plug for for us. John and I run a group on Facebook called Queer Money, and that group is all individuals who identify as LGBTQ. It's a safe space for you to ask questions, to basically cry out for some sort of advice. Uh, We're always amazed at the kind of the honesty and vulnerability that people have in the group. And we love it because the answers are coming from folks in the group who have experience and want to help. So that's another place you can look.
0: Oh, I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that resource. And I encourage everyone to partake and and share. I love that. Um, So I wanted to end the interview and see how you guys are managing your mental and financial health today. You know, I know you guys have gone through a lot with paying off your debt and then becoming entrepreneurs. And I know you guys were nomads for a little bit, which we didn't really talk about, but they have been nomads (laughs) going all over the world. Um, How are you managing your mental and financial health today?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) Do we have some (laughs) wine? (laughs) Do we have some wine? Um, (laughs) You know, uh, David and I, I think are are experiencing, uh, I think we're kind of right there with with most Americans and I guess maybe most humans today are kind of dealing with. Uh, We had planned for 2020 to be a a great year for us. Um, We had all sorts of business prospects and much of our income comes from public speaking and brand partnerships. And as anybody who kind of does that and does any sort of uh, kind of partnerships probably also saw that just kind of evaporated. So we've, we've lost, uh, we lost half our income relative to last year and considerably more than we had projected for this year. So um, long-term, we're good financially and we had a healthy emergency savings account so that we weren't really too concerned, uh, but things haven't really gotten much better yet. <laughs> and yeah, so we're starting I to know. feel the, stre- the financial stress of that now. And I think um, while we did maybe enjoy the first couple of days, maybe even weeks of quarantine, right? Because that was kind of a novelty, and, and who can't watch, didn- who didn't want to get caught up on their Netflix? Yeah. Um, <laughs> after a while, it's starting to take a toll on us. We've had some of our own challenges, to be honest with you, um, but we're thankful that we ha- we have each other and we do have uh, even though it's virtual, we do have a support system of people to stay in contact with so uh, you know we're hanging in there. Uh, we know that we'll get through this we're making plans for the future, but uh, it has been um, kind of challenging.
0: thanks for mentioning that. I mean, I'm feeling you know similarly with my business, I've definitely had you know, fewer assignments and less income over the past three months. I felt like the first three months I was kind of hanging in there more. And then just the past three months, it's just been going down. And it's so scary because it just feels so uncertain. And, you know, I think a lot of us had this idea that it was going to be over by now, or it was going to be over in some kind of tangible, knowable time. And now it's just like, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I think, It's so easy to go insane with all of the question marks. And I feel you. It's like getting stuffy just to be in the house all day and try to take walks and get out just even if it's for 20 minutes and try to find something novel to do because yeah, these, these are hard times.
2: I would agree. I I think one of the, uh, I will say I'm lucky to have the man I'm with. I love John and I'm glad that uh, I have him to be with uh, during this time. And I think that's <laughs> what <laughs> is so sweet. <laughs> I think all of us, that's you know what we, we need. We reach out for those relationships. Maybe you can't physically touch them, but reach out for those relationships of people that you would want to be reaching back to you. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that sometimes that's all it is, is that, you know, a text that says, Hey, how's it going? I hope you're doing okay. Just wanted to send you a smiley face. And sometimes that's all we need. And sometimes that's all we can give. And so I think that, you know, that's, we're, whether we like it or not, we're all in this and we're in it together. All right. And we'll try to behave the
1: best we can. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. On our best behavior. <laughs>
1: he says with horns coming out of his head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. This has been such a great interview. Where can people find you and what are your upcoming workshops, courses, things that people can take advantage of to help manage their own mental and financial health?
1: Uh, sure. So we are, uh, we're the debt-free guys pretty much everywhere. Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we also have the Queer Money Podcast as well as we just recently launched our debtlasso.com site. It's a microsite that helps people with our unique method for paying off credit card debt and then we have our credit card payoff course, which uh, elaborates on that five-step process to pay off credit card debt and is a comprehensive strategy that so far the last 18 months have helped people pay off over $400,000 in credit card debt. Oh so my gosh! About that. So we So that predominantly helps people get out of credit card debt, but if you're looking to pay off debt in general, it can certainly help you out. And uh, yeah, just look for us at DebtFreeGuys.com.
0: Perfect, and we'll have... Um- the course in the show notes. Sorry, go ahead.
2: That's okay. I I will add just one other thing. Um, When it comes to mental health, one of the things that John and I have found has really helped us is to have a, a system or a group of habits that help train our brain or bring us back to places that are important for us to be in. And we have created something called the Fabulous Life Combo and basically, Good. it's it's some tools that we use on a regular basis that not only help us with making sure we're not spending more money than we make, because that causes mental anguish and financial anguish, but also helps us kind of map out and continue to march towards what we really want in life. And that's something that we make available for free. To your listeners if they want and that's something that we have available for free on our website just this combo pack of simple tools that you can use to give yourself that boost or to sometimes uh to be able to rant on the paper about how you're feeling and it's really good to have those kind of uh those things that help you maintain your sanity sometimes
0: <laughs> so important yes thank you so much for sharing and we will have all of this in the show notes awesome Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank
1: Thank you. you. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.